3: Today's quote is from Margaret Sanger in 1914. Uh, she was a a serious hero and also seriously problematic and compromised, but a real fighter for women's rights and especially for uh, reproductive rights. And she put this out in um, something called "Woman Rebel" that she created with her sister in 1914, and this is the manifesto called "Why the Woman Rebel?" Question mark. Because I believe that deep down in woman's nature lies slumbering the spirit of revolt. Because I believe that woman is enslaved by the world machine, by sex conventions, by motherhood and its present necessary child rearing, by wage slavery, by middle class morality, by customs, laws and superstitions. Because I believe that woman's freedom depends upon awakening that spirit of revolt within her against these things which enslave her, because I believe that these things which enslave her must be fought openly, fearlessly, consciously. Welcome to Permission to Speak, the podcast about how we talk and how we get ourselves heard with me. Bay. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Um, last week's episode was all about exploring our biases around African American English. And this week, with a huge acknowledgement about how intersectional this all is and how little fits neatly into strict categories, this week's episode is sort of a part two turning the spotlight on biases around women's voices, on how aspects of our speech, uh, the bits that sound a little different than men generally, or seem to, are what people love to point out. I'm talking about how much we say like, or speak in vocal fry, vocal fry, for example, uh, which, by the way, quick Google search will tell you is different definitely what is holding you back from anybody taking you seriously. So our guide through this episode, my guest, is Amanda Montell. She is a reporter and an essayist and the author of Word Slut, A Feminist Guide to Taking Back the English Language, which came out in paperback a few weeks ago. And I wanted to have her on because that book is, I mean... One of my all time favorite reads. Amanda studied linguistics in undergrad, and I think very much like me, sees in the study of how we talk. A window into so much of all of our actual real life drama, the ways that we show up in the world, the ways that we are treated, the ways we treat others, the ways we communicate our innermost thoughts for the, you know, chance at being truly understood and also, you know, what gets in the way of that. And I do have to warn you that you will hear us geek out like so hardcore in this conversation and go on some ridiculous tangents. But you may also feel what I felt reading her book, which is like a really deep sense of satisfaction and validation that how we sound, all of our likes and vocal fry and upspeak and filler words are markers of our gender and in some cases of our generation. And we can absolutely try on different modes if we want because we contain multitudes. And, you know, if you want suggestions on how, then definitely listen to our upcoming mailbag episode. But, this is the big but, we can also revel in how much, how each of us speaks is English in America right now where we stand, we're it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so this is Amanda. First of all, will you tell the people about um, this French thing with la COVID and and what that says about, um, I think it's a good way in, honestly, to talking about like how much more language uh, oppresses or empowers us than we think it does.
4: Yeah, absolutely. In France, there is um, a legitimate grammar police, an official um, coalition of grammarians called l'Académie Française, some people might know this. It consists of mostly white dudes named Jean. That is a fact. You can look it up. Um, there are at least 14 Jeans on the board of the Academy Française somehow. But anyway, they um, <laughs> determined the country's... It's true. They determine the country's official grammatical rules and um, that includes the gendered noun classification of new words. So, you know, French is a grammatically gendered language where every noun receives a masculine and feminine suffix. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of languages like these throughout the world. But it was just announced that L'Académie Française has determined that from now on, COVID-19 is officially a feminine noun. La COVID-19. And there was some- Which it wasn't.
3: Lo- which people were like
4: which wasn't. generally
3: making it just generally masculine. And so they had to kind of come in from above.
4: You're correct. So people were saying le COVID-19 with this masculine le article. Um and the French grammar police stepped in and they said, No, no,
3: it is not It is not. <laughs> I won't even But attempt. they didn't but they didn't say it in English because <laughs> Non, non, absolument <laughs> <Assurément> non. <laughs> Un moment,
4: moment. <Maman. laughs> yeah, like we'll just, we'll just say a bunch of words that rhyme with no in impossible. a French accent. Yeah, exactly. Uh, comment ça se dit? I don't know. I'll like say the four French things I know how to say. Um, but sandwich, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bolognaise. yeah, Bolognese. A bottle of This could get really derailed really fast. Anyways, too late. Um, so they, I mean, their reasoning was that the word "maladie," meaning illness, is feminine, mm-hmm. and so we're gonna go with that, even though "virus" is masculine. It, it didn't make a whole lot of sense, but um, you know, this this concept of uh, a disease being marked. Feminine. It it might not sound um, like it has a whole lot to do with human gender. You know, every noun gets uh, a gender assignment in France. Table, eyeball, they all do. But um, linguists have found that there's um, a quote-unquote leakage that occurs between um, between grammatical gender and how we perceive human gender and. This shows up in in so many ways. One of the ways is um, how we perceive so many esteemed professions. And this is even true in English, but in a a grammatically gendered language like French, it's even more literal. Um, So, so many esteemed professions in the French language are masculine gendered, like professor and doctor. Um, But, you know, so-called girl jobs, um, like secretaries and babysitters are marked feminine. So when, you know, la coronavirus was deemed indeed to be feminine, it sort of reminded me of how in English, a, a language that does not have any grammatical gender except for our third singular pronouns, he and she, we so often refer to dangerous complicated things with that pronoun she. So countries, oceans, natural disasters, cars, ships. Um, they These are by no coincidence, you know, perilous, hazardous intrusions that men have a long history of needing to, you know, conquest and dominate and cure. You know, for the longest time, storms, um, hurricanes were only named after women. And, Ooh. you know, thanks to the the second wave feminist movement, the like National Weather Service, or I forget who actually determined that um, came around. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah. And decided they were going to alternate between male and female names. But um,
3: there's actually there was this amazing study. By the way, that makes it feel like that's the only place where we have gender parity now in hurricanes.
4: Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's great. uh, That's great. With hurricanes. (laughs) Yeah. But there was this um, There was a study that a bunch of linguists conducted in 2011. They published this study in the Journal of Popular Culture that was um, analyzing sexist souvenir t-shirts that were sold in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. Uh. And slogans included, Katrina, that bitch. I got blown on, pissed on. Or I got blown on. I got blown, pissed on, and fucked by Katrina. What a whore. Mm -hmm. Katrina can blow me. She won't keep me away from Mardi Gras 2006. So like, that's a very clear example of how you know an ostensibly non-human related piece of grammatical gender can really inform how you're perceiving that entity right so we don't have this grammatical gender where um you know there's say an o suffix on the end of words like surgeon or doctor or professor or writer or actor but you know these words are tacitly coded male and we can hear that when we um when we hear things like female scientist or woman doctor or lady doctor. Um, girl those, boss. Those things really, uh, girl boss. The yes, I thing. have a whole diatribe on girl boss. But these things really, yeah, you know, CEO, boss, entrepreneur, these these words are, are tacitly coded male in our culture. Um, and when we have to, you know, modify them with an actively feminine um, modifier or prefix or suffix or make it cutesy with some feminine modifier, that really um, illuminates that sexist notion.
3: So yes, yeah, so so this is um very broadly the ways that we aren't necessarily thinking about how the language we use informs the way we think. There's also the other part of it which is the language we use coming out of our mouth and how that affects how people perceive us, which is something I'm talking about all the time and obviously as a dialect coach, um, you know, my foundational work in this was people coming to me and saying I literally need to change the way I'm perceived. Some people think that in a mm-hmm. you know subconscious way, but when they're coming to a dialect coach, it's like gotten really conscious. And there's this amazing quote here that you had um, in your book right at the beginning, where you said every part of our speech, our words, our intonation, our sentence structures, is sending invisible signals telling other people who we are and how to treat us. <laughs> It's same. So, but true. So true I mean, I so underlined true. it like that not because I'm like, "How dare you," but because I'm like, "Well, yeah. isn't that the fucking truth?" Yeah. So linguists who study gender, which, by the way, I feel like you have found all of them, and you have spoken to all of them. So thank you for that. Okay. Um, it's it's like it's actually relatively new. I mean, it's like our lifetimes, and. You have this quote, one of the most exciting concepts that this new crop of research shows is that women possess a secret badass arsenal of linguistic qualities that are profoundly misunderstood and deeply needed in the world right now. So can we talk about some of them? I want to talk about, um, oh, here's one, gossip. Sure. Yeah.
4: So gossip obviously has this incredibly negative connotation um people think that gossip is idle and petty and something that only women do whereas men's talk is banter which is <laughs> more sophisticated and never stoops to discussing people who aren't in the room um and <laughs> linguists have found that that's i mean you don't even need to be a linguist to uh, understand that that's profoundly untrue um but there's There's plenty of empirical data to support the fact that gossip is really a a serviceable and goal-driven practice. Um, And so there's this one linguist named Deborah Cameron, who I reference a lot in the book, who's explained that when you analyze it closely, gossip serves these three main purposes. Um, And the first is to circulate personal information in order to keep members of a social group in the know. Um, The next is to bond with one another by establishing the gossipers as an in-group and then the third is to um, affirm the group's commitment to certain values or norms. Um, and this is absolutely not um, a woman-only pursuit. It's just that, um, you know, the the word gossip has been
3: uh, deemed this sort of female word. That third part that you described is so interesting. I don't remember exactly what you said of reaffirming the, the social mores, but the idea of, like, we, do, we gossip when somebody breaks what seemed to be kind of uh, you know, socially agreed upon rules of of politeness and civility. And that's interesting. It's not always judging it, but it is like, whoa, are you allowed to break that rule? Can I break that rule if that right. person broke that rule? I mean, it's like the constant negotiation yeah. of like patriarchy.
4: Right. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously gossip is in the eyes of the beholder, <laughs> the most the most damaging form of gossip. Uh, in recent history that i can think of is obviously trump's locker room banter i mean what is mm-hmm. gossip if not that that was 100% you know talking about a person behind their back by
3: the way if only that was damaging <laughs> i know right like nobody cared nobody cared there was um. 2 seconds there um so okay so another one this is actually related i want to talk about hedging i want to talk about jam sessions the idea of a conversation being a jam session is so inspiring. I know. I, I love
4: that. I love that term. um, it's it's one that this linguist named Jennifer Coates came up with to describe um the conversational style that exists in, in groups of, of only women. And so there's this chapter in my book called Mm-hmm, girl, you're right. How women, no, wait, what is the t- name of this chapter? I like, I, I never get to talk about this chapter. No one ever asks me about it. Um, for some reason, um, people always, oh, it's called "Mm-hmm, girl, you're right. How women talk to each other when dudes aren't around. Yes. Um, and so it sort of explores some of the, some of the more stigmatized, um, Forms of the way that women speak um, when they're in the company of selectively other women. But yeah, one of the coolest observations that this linguist named Jennifer Coates made was that she likened women's really distinct turn taking structure of their conversations to a musical jam session. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said that, you know, the defining characteristic of a jam session is that the conversational floor is potentially open to all participants simultaneously. And, you know, in in these conversations, you might hear overlapping talk or um, speakers repeating one another or rephrasing one another's words. And everyone is really working together to construct meaning. And so this like one at a time speaker rule, um, which is what we see in a lot of conversations among only men, that rule doesn't apply because, you know, generally speaking, and this is a generalization, when women engage in conversation, the goal is to sort of construct solidarity and build a conversation together and so you know if you want to picture it visually the the conversational floor is more horizontal but men view the conversational floor as more as as more of an arena for individual achievement and so it it takes more of a vertical structure um and so yeah when when women engage in this jam session and they're interrupting each other and and overlapping and building on each other's sentiments this um this simultaneous speech or, or interruption—it it doesn't threaten comprehension. You know, it's not seen as like a rude interruption. It it actually permits a more multi-layered development of topics. Um, and this jam session structure is something that you rarely find in exchanges of men. You know, you're 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 so rarely going to find a group of you know at least straight white men um sitting around being like oh yeah oh my god Mm mm-hmm yes with this with these like active listening cues um minimal responses and tag questions and things like that. And these are stigmatized forms
3: that are seen as rude, ditzy, frivolous, insecure, et cetera. And this is where the word hedging comes in, too. This idea of hedging is like adding in the word, like, I'm just wondering instead of I'm wondering. And, you know, some some versions of like, although we're going to talk about other versions of like. But the idea yeah. that these things that that are coded as female are actually because they help build conversations, Right, right. So softening hedges, um, which are just absolutely dragged
4: in popular media in you know, trainers in the workplace who come in and teach women how to speak professionally. um, They're just like absolutely lambasted. But these are um, terms like, you know, just actually, I mean, well, et cetera, that are perceived as signs of uncertainty. And some have argued that women have been conditioned to use these softening hedges because just as we've been trained to express uncertainty of our physical attractiveness, we've been taught to express uncertainty of the conviction of our statements. And so we've peppered our speech with just you knows and wells in order to to soften them. And so then we get this advice that we need to cut the just you knows and other hedges in order to sound more authoritative and to accommodate to um this male standard but actually linguists and thank goodness for them um have you know looked at at hedges in an empirical way and found that they're not so simple and they don't all serve the same purpose um and they usually don't communicate insecurity at all in fact what they what they do is they form trust and empathy in conversation and they really account for the face needs of everyone in a conversation and you know women really need the interpersonal tools of hedges more often than men do because we so often delve into sensitive territory
3: during our conversations. In that same bit uh, where Jennifer Coates is talking, she's, she specifically says that, you know, there have been enough studies that, that she can say pretty decisively, men do not talk about sensitive subjects as frequently as we do. They don't, they don't. need that. They avoid them rather right. than figuring out ways that we have figured out Over, you know, 6,000 years of patriarchal rule to get into the real stuff, to bond with people when we need to bond with them and to do it gently enough that, as you say, people can save face so that bonds can actually happen and there's not like ripping people further apart, but rather bringing them closer.
4: Yeah. And what's sad is that, like, there was this there was this book um, published a few years ago called Deep Secrets by, um, oh, what's her name? I think it's Niobe Way. And it explored the friendships of young straight men. And what was kind of sad was that, like, she followed this group of boys through adolescence and found that when they were little, boys' friendships with other boys were, like, just as intimate, just as emotional mm-hmm. as friendships between girls. But it wasn't until those norms of masculinity sank in that the boys, you know, ceased to confide in one another, express their vulnerable feelings. This, you know, no homo creed became entrenched. And so then, you know, they felt they started to feel like they couldn't rely on their bros for emotional support. They couldn't engage in those jam sessions. It would be seen as gay. And so you know, from then on, women became the the carriers of their emotional burdens um, and only in private.
3: <sighs> yeah, there's a Peggy Orenstein book that just came out uh, about, like, called Boys and Sex, that where she, like, befriends them and and sees that hardcore over, over a long period of time. Yeah. The other thing I want to throw out, and then we totally have to take a break, is um, I was super influenced by this book called Joining the Resistance. Everybody, Joining the resistance, Carol Gilligan. She's a linguist and also a psychologist. And she talks all about how we've all been trained that women, most important thing for women is relationships. Most important thing for men is self. And so in a way, we have right. to not listen to ourself in order to have relationships. And boys have to not listen to relationships, not, not prioritize relationships, because they have to be all about their individualism. It is right. legit and so deep. And I'm raising a little boy, so and I'm like, don't. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to be right back.
1: by visiting musicgives.org.
3: We're back with Amanda Montel. Okay, like. Anyone who's been listening to this conversation will surely have heard uh, a few of them by now. These ideas, this hedging, overusing the word like, these are so maligned, and it is so clearly because of who, not
4: what. Right. That's completely correct. And that's something that I that I try to get across as much as possible is that our judgments of people's speech, not only women, but all marginalized groups um, have so little to do with the language itself and very much to do with our preconceived notions of that population. And so, you know, we perceive, for example, African-American vernacular English as quote unquote poor grammar, when really like that is an incredibly legitimate dialect that you will learn in linguistics 101. And there are grammatical constructions in African-American vernacular English that are so much cooler than anything we have in quote-unquote standard English. That's not something to look down upon. It's something to celebrate and aspire to. You know, so much of the way that women speak, folks of color speak, really any marginalized demographic speaks, is a product of—it's really a sign of their ingenuity, but also a product of their oppression. Um, And it's those two things working together to produce a new linguistic form um, and I try to, you know, when I hear language that I don't recognize or I don't understand, you know, because of my linguistics background, I try my best and I have this instinct already, but I try to a- approach it with a sense of curiosity and enthusiasm and adaptability. Like, wh- what is this? You know, what-, what does this language mean? Why is it being used?
3: There's a really strong pull in uh, in linguistic circles to be descriptivist instead of prescriptivist. And right. that really means that we're observing and we're interested. Yeah. It does not mean that we're saying that there's any shoulds. And, you know, obviously what we're all pushing against – Uh, is these these shoulds that, you know, whether the word is used or not, the implication that there's a right way and then there's this um, cutesy or undermining other alternative thing we're doing that needs to get, you know, beaten out of us.
4: Yeah. When I explain what a linguist is to people, because a lot of people don't know, and I didn't even know until I got to college, um, because people think like, oh, are you a grammarian? Are you a speech pathologist? Are you a translator? How many languages do How you speak? How many languages
3: do you speak? <laughs> yeah.
4: <laughs> and I'm like, well, it, you know, it just so happens that I speak a foreign language. Um, but and that will often be the case because linguists have this thing where they love language, um, but it's not necessarily relevant to the work that linguists do. And obviously, there are so many different subfields of linguistics, sy- syntax, semantics, phonetics, phonology. um psycholinguistics, computational linguistics, and then of course sociolinguistics. But I like to tell people that linguistics is the science of language and I'm not interested in how people should talk. I'm interested in how they do talk and I'm fascinated by it and delighted by it. Um, And so, you know, that's that's just like a much more fun way to approach it because a lot of people have the impulse to be kind of like a pedantic curmudgeon when it comes to language change.
3: (laughs) <laughs> well, and also to get back to what we were talking about, when you're when you're um curious and interested and in like a scientist, you know, sort of following the story to figure out what's truth, the story emerges. And the story we're talking about here is like eons of oppression and what it's done. Oh, and yeah. I have this amazing quote ready here. From page 131 of your book, you said the ways in which women and many other socially oppressed folks empower themselves with language are all rather connected. There exists a long history of marginalized groups innovating linguistically to build themselves up, and they're clearly very good at it because the rest of the world invariably ends up talking just like them. That's right. Half a generation later. Yeah. So time and time again, linguists have found
4: that women are our culture's linguistic innovators. Um and there are a lot of theories as to why that is, but my favorite is that women use language as a form of social power in a culture that doesn't give them a lot of other ways to do that. Um, and I have some specific examples of how that works, but I can talk about like if you want, because it's yes. one of my my favorite uh, things to talk about. So... <laughs> Like, <laughs> can we just take a second? Yeah. <laughs> One of your favorite things to talk about.
3: Um, hello. It really is. I mean, um, that's. By just- the way, Amanda and I have never actually met before, and I mean, granted, I don't know if this counts as meeting through the internet, but like, I, I'm like, hi. Yeah. Oh, friend. I know. <laughs> like, I like,
4: but I feel like we have because. Our personalities are strong, and they come through even over Instagram, I think.
3: A, yes. B, I also think that I just saw your Myers-Briggs, and I think we might be the same. ENFJ. So. <laughs>
0: yes.
3: Yeah. <laughs> um, which might be why I think we both kind of carry the mantle of, like, the person who wants to, like— turn some of this stuff that can be accidentally hidden away in academia mm-hmm. into something that's that's available for public consumption and that's fun and that's young and that's us, you Oh, know? yeah. I'm a populist bitch. Like, I'm not
4: getting a PhD. Yep, yep, um, yep. When I was, like, interviewing linguists for my book, some of them were so kind and so generous with their time and really supportive of what I was trying to do, and some were offended, like— who are you? I question your background. I question your motives. Um, so academia academia can be really
3: um crotchety. <laughs> um, yeah. well, and the whole idea that like it's it's suspect that you'd want to make their work public. I mean, i also i I coached. Uh, years ago at this place called the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science with scientists, helping them, you know, talk about their work with passion so that they could actually get funded or actually, like, inspire the next fucking generation. And they had some resistance, some of them, because they have been, it's been so beaten into them that to, sh- to tell any personal stories, to bring any emotion, even if the emotion is passion, not like sadness, into the room, is to be disqualified as a scientist. So there's some like cultural stuff going on within the subculture of academia that is probably helping no one.
4: Yeah. So my parents are research scientists. I come from mm. like a long line of PhDs. My grandparents My were- dad
3: is an astrophysicist, so.
4: See? My yeah, my <laughs> parents or my grand my grandparents were bacteriologists. My mom is a cancer cell biologist. My dad is a neuroscientist. Um, and they've done things at the Alan Alda Center. My parents are are well, they're in academia, but they're also sort of populist. And my mom actually was trying to get her own book deal. My mom wanted to write word slut, but for like embryology. <laughs> but um, <gasps> but like. <laughs> no, but she's gonna she's gonna publish it with an academic press because like popular yeah. presses were like, what? No. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Um, so poor mom. Um, but tell me about like. Oh yeah. Tell Sorry, us wait, we got like. way off track. Um okay, so like
3: No, it's so good.
4: Like is obviously one of the most criticized lampooned speech qualities in the English language today. You know, when people make fun of teenage girls, they say things like, and then I was like, and she was like, and you were like, and like, 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 like. Um, and people think that, you know, all likes are the same and they're just a blatant sign of ditziness and that if you don't know what you're saying and if you're a ding dong and a turkey, then you're going to use like all over the place. Um, But Despite the words detractors, you know, like is actually extremely useful and versatile. And linguists have found that there are six completely distinct forms of the word like. They're all homonyms, just like, you know, the noun watch, meaning the timepiece on your wrist, and the verb watch, meaning what you do with your eyes when you turn on the TV, are homonyms. And, you know, the two oldest forms of like in the English language are the verb like and the adjective like, as in the sentence, um, oh, I, I like your backdrop. Um, it looks like something out of the jungle. <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> complimenting the, the beautiful backdrop <laughs> I'm seeing right now. But um, those, you know, those two yeah, forms are, they sound exactly the same. So most people don't even notice that there are these separate words with separate histories. Um, and they, they're both so old that, you know, We've had a lot of time to get used to them. They, they And come.
3: men use them too.
4: Yeah, and men use them too. Like nobody, <laughs> nobody complains. But yeah, they come from these two incredibly old Old English words. One is leech, and one is Lichian. Um, my uh, audiobook engineer taught me how to pronounce those two old English words. Um, so I'm I'm grateful to her for that. Thanks, Cassandra. Shout out. But um there are these four new likes that have developed much more recently than that, and these are all separate words with distinct distinct uses, too. Um, and only two of these likes are used more frequently by women, and only one of them was pioneered by young Southern California females in the 1990s, which is where we get that valley girl stereotype mm-hmm. from. And that one is my favorite one, and it's the quotative like, which you would hear in a sentence. And I was like, oh my God, what are you saying? And she was like, I know, Right. And this, like, is super useful because it allows you to tell a story to, like, relay something that happened without having to quote the interaction verbatim. So if I were to say, um, oh, yeah, and then my boss was like, I need those papers by Monday. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I'm not saying what actually happened, but instead saying what I, you know, wish had happened or, or conveying the spirit of the interaction. And this mm-hmm. incredibly useful quotative like has continued to explode in popularity since the 90s. So then there are two more forms of the word like and these are hedges. One is a discourse particle and one is a discourse marker and they are very similar. They're used to, you know, connect or organize or express a certain attitude with um, with your speech and so the discourse particle you would hear in something like, oh that backdrop is like my favorite thing I've seen all day. But the discourse marker would be like that backdrop, it's really cute. Um, and the discourse particle is used. <laughs> the discourse particle is used just as much by men and women. It's used in equal measure. and so it isn't ridiculed as much. It's really only the forms of the word like that are used a little bit more by women that receive such heavy criticism. Um, And then the last form of the of like is the uh, approximate adverb, which has been around since or which has uh, replaced the approximate adverb about in casual conversation. Mm -hmm. And so nobody ever complains. And you would hear that in um, I, uh, I, I bought this sweatshirt like two years ago. Um, and so because it's been around for a while and men and women both use it, um, nobody has any problem with it. And so objectively, that we can see that using one, two, or all of these likes in the same sentence um, isn't inherently a bad thing, and so I like to tell people, you know, if you get criticized for saying the word like too much, you can ask them, oh, really? Which kind? Um, Because uh, a lot of the time... You know, people ridicule like so heavily um, just because they don't realize that there are these six different forms um, and they they blame women for all of them.
3: And if we were using any word six different ways, um, we're bound to hear it more often. That's an interesting point. Yes.
4: Oh, 100%. There was this really funny quote from The New Yorker a few years ago um, where someone said, if men had pioneered all of these different likes, we would be reading The Like New
3: Yorker. But, you know. Oh, well. (laughs) You know, but like, you know. Um, Yes, I very memorably, because it's like really, I had to take a moment with this. I gave a talk, uh, which I've talked about on this podcast before for like 400 people before. And it was great. It was very well received. And I had some friends in the audience who happened to be walking out at the end behind two older women who said, quote unquote, do you think she was using all those likes on purpose? Wow, wow. And so I I really wrestled with, when I heard that I was part of me, got instantly ashamed, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, the the total like conditioning that we should not be saying like so much without questioning why we shouldn't be saying like so much. Uh, So that I absolutely got hit with that. And then of course, afterwards, like moments afterwards, the second hit that I got was like, yeah, yeah, I'm an authority figure who can stand on a stage and have those two women think I gave a great talk and have them wonder if i was using like on purpose because it is a marker of my particular generation and identity. Right.
4: Oh yeah, i once um working as a beauty editor, which was my old career. Um i <laughs> i we had this duo of media trainers come in to sort of evaluate and give the editors pointers on how we should conduct ourselves on camera were we to do like a bunch of Facebook lives or whatever the fuck back when Facebook live was like a major thing. Um, and I remember this, uh, this colleague and I, she was also in her early twenties were assigned to just like sit down and engage in a spontaneous conversation. And we were going to be judged on our, you know, how we seemed and, uh, how we came across. And I remember the media trainer. Just like laid into me for saying like too
3: much, you know. She was telling me
4: about how in authoritative it made me sound, and blah
3: blah blah. Little did she know, you would literally become the authority on like. I know. By the and way, then, side note. Well, side the note.
4: funny thing was that like I I was working on my Word slut book proposal at the time, and so I was just sort of you know chuckling to myself. But then the crazy part was that she said at the end, she was like, I mean, all that said. He came across as very likable, extremely likable. Like, I want to be your best friend, likable. <gasps> And I was like, secretly, I know that it was very much my authenticity of speech and my relaxed nature um, that allowed me to come across as so likable. And in fact, linguists have found that speech lacking in likes and you knows can cause someone to come across as too robotic or stiff or unfriendly. And um, so I just thought that that was funny. But But it reminded me that like, you know, Well, it reminded me of a couple of things. First of all, so much of the criticism, and this is, you know, relevant to your story too, that women get um, of their speech comes from other women who are older and had to accommodate to these really problematic linguistic standards. And so they're then perpetuating those standards and figuring, you know, well, if I had to go through this struggle and if I had to, to accommodate, then that's par for the course and you should have to too. But, you know, hopefully when the younger generation becomes the boss and, you know, I have an I have assistants or not multiple assistants. I have one assistant (laughs) now. um, And so I would never judge her for for using the word like I would I would never perpetuate those same um, problematic standards. And I try to encourage other women that when they become the boss one day to um, resist doing that and to create a, a more empowering environment for women and to not
3: create that environment so, this is the question, right? I want to bring it back to a few like really attempts at solid pieces of advice here, and one of them one of them is around this idea of what does it mean to work on having a powerful voice or coming across as authoritative while also not denying you know the ways that we talk because they're they're a part of our natural voice and it's a challenge. I mean, you know for some people, it is about um. I mean, I've certainly been in a position of telling people that the way that they are vocal frying at the end of their thought where, like, they'll say something that matters, like, it sounds like it matters, but then they'll say, like, but I don't know, right? Or something that has the, gives the quality of, but I don't know, is extremely useful and totally uh, valid in those interaction jam sessions and but— if they're giving a talk, it's an interesting opportunity to see what does it sound like in my voice to get to the end of the thought, like I believe myself all the way to the end, right. even if it feels weird, and see, does that person also live in me? If yeah. she doesn't, fine, Yeah, right? But what if she does, and we've just been all socialized into this stuff that works in one context, but less in another.
4: Right. So I think context is incredibly important with language, right? Like, context is everything, obviously, you know, and that, and that can apply to things like, you know, the use of vocal fry and upspeak and like um, whether you're using those in natural everyday conversation or using them in a presentation. It's also true when we're talking about gendered insults like bitch and slut. You know, if I am talking to my friend, I'm like, yes, bitch, you bad bitch. I'm so glad you had a slutty night. The context yeah. is so different than if someone is using the words bitch and slut as, as terms of abuse. So context is of primary importance when we're talking about language. Um but yeah, I think like obviously in certain by the way, that was the discourse particle like um that I just used. Always like to point that out. Um but yeah, I think there are there's a time and place for our most natural speech and there's a time and place for a slightly more heightened and formalized version. Obviously, when I'm writing my book, I'm not going to put justs and you knows and wells everywhere. Um, And there are people who do write like that. Like There are people who do hedge in their writing to create a certain casual effect. But I'm trying to write uh, an authoritative linguistics book. That's fun and
3: accessible. But I, I would actually argue that you did that you've that you that you really honed in on a third way. Like there is the informal and there's the formal. Right. But then there's also conversational writing, yeah. which is different than than unconversational writing that would sound bad out loud, true. you know? And I think you and I are probably both playing in that way of like, how do we sound like a human on the page? Right. But also, yes, take out the things that we don't need because we're not actually asking the other person do they understand what we're saying. You know, as I've said on this podcast, my actual real intention is how to help people use their voice to get what they want. Right. It's not how to use your voice regardless of what you want. Yeah. And in regardless of what context, right? And I think something that we both are super jazzed about is that language exists in order to do something. Yeah exactly exactly and
4: you know we were talking about code switching before and that's a that's a cue that we can take from you know speakers of african american a- vernacular English who also speak standard American English. It's like, we need to be able to drop into different registers according to the situation at hand. Um, and I certainly have different registers. You know, I have my, like my boyfriend will overhear me talk in my, um, Amanda university, Instagram register, and then talk in my, when I'm interviewing a source for my book, I have a completely different register. And, um, we were talking about how I volunteer on a crisis lifeline. I have a totally different, um, form of speech when when mm-hmm. that's the context. And then I have the, the you know this the voice that I use when I'm talking with my friends. I have the voice that I use when I'm talking at a public event. You know, we we need to be able to um adjust according to the situation. And that's not to put any pressure on anyone to um you know have to radically alter their speech because something else that I want to communicate is like really the most important thing is authenticity. Like talk about something you care about and You know, you can listen to the spin doctors and the vocal coaches all you want, but if your speech sounds inauthentic and stilted, you're not going to be compelling and you're not going to get across what you need to get across.
3: And part of what's what's the deal with my with like my ethos around around voice coaching is that where i'm what I'm trying to get for authentic you know quote unquote authentic voices from people is that they're talking about the things that matter to them in a way that sounds like it matters to them. And yeah. we've often had that sort of socialized out of us. So having to get a little boost to be like, ooh, what does it feel like to actually breathe and feel my feelings and be a, a you know giving myself permission to do that so that I can actually like let my authentic self out and not just hide? Yeah, exactly. Okay I had a few questions One of them was about what people tend to write to you about like what their responses have been, which I really want to know but the one that I think we should end this section on is um, you're writing a book on cults now and specifically about um, the language of cults and and I, I think how they brainwash us and and I and I think what you're sort of implying is that um, it's happening to all of us all the time <laughs> um what yeah. uh has it changed anything about how what you wrote in Word Slot, or what are you learning that's surprising?
4: Yeah, well, the first thing um, is that brainwashing doesn't exist. It's a pseudoscientific mm. concept um, and a metaphor, after all, nobody actually mm. cuts open the brain and scrubs it. Mm. Although, although um, there is a more literal form of brainwashing that occurs when we sleep um, thanks to our glymphatic system um but that's a a totally separate um very nerdy concept that has to do more with what my parents study anyways um mm-hmm. yeah so i i'm studying this wide spectrum of the of the groups that the word cult can be applied to in contemporary culture from the most you know notoriously destructive groups like jonestown heaven's gate scientology Two groups that are a little more on the fence, like multi-level marketing um, organizations. Two groups that are ostensibly, you know, very constructive, like SoulCycle and Peloton <laughs> um, and other fitness groups. Um, <laughs> and specifically, yeah, I'm looking at how these different groups use language to do all the things that a cult would need to do in order to um, gain power and stay in power and create a following, so you know,
3: control people,
4: control people, you know, create solidarity, instill ideology, create that us versus them mentality, um, really warp followers' realities. Um, and it's it's super.
3: Are you looking at um, political stuff as well? <laughs>
4: Sorry, whoa. <laughs> I, <laughs> <laughs> I think a demon was just expelled from my mouth.
3: Oh, my God. Okay, well, that's probably a sign that we're way overdue for a break anyway. So we're, we will table the conversation about the cult and the politics for um, your next visit here, obviously. Uh, we will be back in a moment to find out who you have brought in for us.
0: This is it. Your moment.
1: by visiting musicgives.org. So we're back,
3: uh, Amanda. Tell us who you brought in for us. I brought this.
4: I don't know. I don't know how many people have heard of her. You might want to Google her later. Her name is Michelle
3: Obama. Um, no, I'm so thrilled you brought in Michelle. I feel like all of the other guests like didn't even realize that they hadn't brought her in yet. Um, it's so good. It's so good. So Michelle Obama, I mean, what a, what a total dream of a um, public speaker. And I pulled two different clips and would love you to tell me which, which you'd like to listen to and talk about for a little bit. Okay. One of them is this sort of when she got on all of our consciousness, which is the, oh uh, eight Democratic National Convention where she gave this gorgeous speech that was very personal uh, and also a, a stunning example of public speaking. The other is from like last week where she's just talking into the camera to some high school students. And I feel like since we're all doing talking into camera work these days and sort of rebranding or rethinking about what public speaking even means for the near future, uh, I mm-hmm. thought that was interesting too. Oh, cool. Well, I want to hear them both. (laughs) Let's, um, for time's sake, let's do the second one because I could see you light up a little bit. Um, Obviously, it's less in a way, you know, on purpose, it's, it's less heightened, as you said earlier, you know. Yeah. But that's part of the idea with how we translate now. you know, We have our private world selves, how we talk to our friends, how we talk to our loved ones. We have our public persona that we're working on or that we are in various stages of discomfort with in terms of like getting on a stage or talking into a microphone. And then we have this weird third way, which is like what coronavirus is allowing us the opportunity to explore is a nice way to put it. Which is like, you know, and also for for people like you who've really been taking advantage of the the opportunity to, you know, whatever, use cameras to reach the masses. um, By which, I mean, everybody needs to go check out Amanda University on um, Instagram Live. Um, But no, but truly, you know, like people who have really harnessed like the power of the YouTube age to connect with people. Are, are who have explored this and, and sort of found how to, how to bring themselves into looking into a weird little black dot on the screen. Yeah. Um, so here's how Michelle does that. You know, we, we hear the stories every day of all of the medical providers and the medical workers who are putting their lives on the line. And that's a big, powerful way that people are sacrificing and making sure that they're playing a part. But there are also ways big and small. I mean, people are delivering food to folks who can't get out. I mean, simple things like checking on your loved ones, pick up the phone, don't just text, make sure the people that you love hear your voice. There's this idea that was discussed in one of my earlier podcasts about um, thinking about how public, how people, how people sort of present themselves publicly as being, um, you, can sort of, you can sort of rate them on these metrics of strength and warmth. Mm-hmm. That aren't opposites, they're just two different sort of things that play next to each other and 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 like sort of together tell a story about how we how we perceive people and how much we feel like we like them or trust them or think yeah. that they're powerful. And you know, just even in that little clip where she's like, you know, not at her most like full-bodied, uh, you know, right, sort of I'm thinking of like, you know, the the stage persona. Um What she says to somebody who basically is saying, I feel powerless, how can I help? Is it makes me think of what I, my interpretation of the strength warmth thing, because I think the strength warmth thing is really strong and really strong and really warm. Uh, No, I think the strength warmth thing is really valuable, but I also think it's, it's, um, it feels really academic. And it's sort of like, mm-hmm. okay, great. How do I turn dial up my strength and dial down my warmth? You know, I mean, it can start to get us in our head in a way that feels very unpermission-y. Yeah. Um, but what I realized that I was thinking about when I had to do that big talk I talked about earlier is that in a way we can think of it as assured and assuring. Assured is about strength. Mm. I am sure of myself to some degree, I am, I am assured that I, that I deserve to be up here and that I have something to say of value. And assuring is that warmth of don't worry, it's going to be okay. I love that. And what I love about when I hit upon that, that version of it is that we can realize we all know how to be that person to the people yeah. we love when they need it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that's what I was feeling when I was listening to her. Right now, I mean, it wasn't like, as I said, it wasn't her biggest. It wasn't her most um, sort of galvanizing, right? But she's talking directly into a lens, which is what we're all having to learn how to do now. While being yeah. a little vulnerable, her voice got a little vocal fry at the end, which is what we do when we're when we're sort of dropping down into like this matters a lot sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes that's what that means. And she also is just saying like, here are some solutions, and you've got this.
4: Yeah, yeah. There's like an intimacy in it. Mm. And there's like a soft, mellifluous, relaxed quality to the voice. I picture her wearing like a sweater instead of like a structured blazer with a belt, you know? <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, and that's the other thing, you know, I'm I'm so into this idea that as we're all living life on Zoom— And people are seeing our homes or some version of our homes. More than that, in the back. (laughs) Although we're all, I think, suddenly feeling all, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of discussion about the self consciousness of people can see my house now. What I'm more interested in is like what the version of us that we bring into those meetings is who is sitting in our house, who's used to being comfortable in our house and bringing that level of comfort and, as you say, intimacy into something that feels like a work context and like can we learn anything right. there about sudden this this sudden like sort of lack of a of a of a division?
4: Yeah it's interesting I think like I can just speak anecdotally I don't have like data on this but I I consider myself a sort of like very casual friendly person with like not a lot of airs. I don't use a lot of like corporate ease. Um yes I use a lot of like linguisticky jargon because I'm a nerd but I I'm just sort of like an informal person who can turn on the formality when it's, you know, necessary and appropriate. But like all of this sort of like let's strip away the pretense and just like get out of the way within the first five minutes that I'm not wearing pants. I mean, I am wearing leggings today, but Mm -hmm. um, like I had. A uh, general meeting. This is a Hollywood term. Um, mm-hmm. I had a general with a production, like fancy production company, the other week, and I wore the Zoom uniform of like a cute top with a headband and like full makeup. And you know, if I had had that meeting in person, I would have also had cute pants and heels, and you know, it would have been, it would have had that certain level of professionalism. But within the first five minutes. These strangers and I were talking about how we were all wearing pajama bottoms. And they were, I I was talking about how I was wearing these stripey pajama shorts that I had had since 2009. And they were like, let's see them. We want to see them. And I was like,
3: okay. (laughs)
4: I was like, you got it. Like, and I just
3: panned down and they were like, those are cute. We all have those. I was like, yeah. I mean, in a way, like, you know, everybody's talking about the silver lining, but like the silver lining of the pandemic in terms of the how business is done is that we can all admit that we've all been sick of the pretense for a while.
4: Yeah. No, the the pretense is really off-putting to me. And I, I talk about it in my cult book about the the pretense and bullshit of, of corporate ease, um, which is something mm-hmm. that, uh, always really rubbed me the wrong way in corporate offices. Obviously like sometimes, um, workplace jargon is necessary to like succinctly communicate about a specific topic, but sometimes it really is just like euphemistic, creepy bullshit. Like when we talk about like wife board, wife boarding, what the fuck? No, whiteboarding and, um, and sunsetting and like, you know, uh, oh god, there are just like there are countless terms that I love to parody, but
3: um, yeah, it's, we're it's getting- much more about. In those cases, it's much more about tribalism, right? It's like we're we're on the in crowd, and if you don't understand us, there's a reason you don't understand us. You have not been let in.
4: Hundred percent, hundred percent, and it's like not for succinctness and clarity. In fact, sometimes it's to actively obscure meanings and confuse outsiders um and even confuse insiders. I, I don't know. It's just like bullshit to me. So yeah, I um, you know, there uh, I like I hesitate to use the word silver lining because I don't, I don't know, this just like all sucks, but yeah. I do um, I do appreciate the humanity that people are showing.
3: Is there a term that we should be using besides silver lining because I feel the same. It's like I, what, a, what an extremely callous thing to say about something that's ruining people's lives all around the world. But also, like, how do we talk about the fact that we're all, like, there's this human need to find hope. And so we find the things that are working better now than they were, you know? Yeah. We'll, we'll look for that. There's this
4: there's this amazing YouTube video that I recommend to everybody. It's this Brene Brown video on empathy. And it it talks about how, like, true empathetic statements never start with, well, at least. You know, huh. like— They don't, you know, like truly empathetic statements don't try to silver line a shitty situation. And, you know, obviously sometimes it's really necessary to look at the hopeful, um, optimistic side of things if that feels appropriate. But this is something I learned like on the lifeline, because sometimes I'm talking to people who do not want advice about what's going well for them or they don't want you know, to be cheered up, if you will. Mm-hmm. They just want the space to talk about how something is awful and how something sucks and how something feels really hopeless. And they want someone to like crawl down in that hole with them instead of looking down from the top being like, mm-hmm. yeah, that sucks, bro. But like, at least you're, you know, at least you don't have COVID. You know, you, they want someone who's <sighs> gonna crawl down in that hole with them and be like, I hear you that's awful. Nobody deserves that shit, you know? Um, and that is not always the most natural impulse for me because I am like a perky person. Um, but it's that same idea of warmth versus strength. Like you were saying, like there is a time to just be, to just be like someone's parent almost. And then and there's blanket. a time, yeah, to be like a blanket. But then it, the, parenting is warmth and strength. So there's a time to be like somebody's blanket, and then there's a time to be someone's like
3: spanking paddle, <laughs> I don't know what the what the metaphor would be. <laughs> um, speaking of um, spanking paddles, we should uh, probably end this. But Amanda, thank you for talking to us today. Oh, it's really thank you. <laughs> Thank you to Amanda Montell for joining me. You can find out more about her and get her book in my show notes or on the website, permissiontospeakpod.com. There's also a little bit more bonus content on Instagram this week where you get to hear Amanda telling me some like serious wisdom on how to think about confidence, which does uh, in fact connect with my five-year-old son correcting me um, in case you were wondering he has all the opinions now about how uh, English works. Shocking, shocking. My child would do that. Um, While you're over there on Instagram, though, please keep sending me DMs. I'm loving people writing in. Tell me what's going on with your voice. Tell me what you want to hear more of in this podcast, including specific guests or general categories of the type of person whose voice would really add to the conversation and I would be really really honored to try to make that happen and thank you to Sophie Lichterman and the team at iHeartRadio to my family and cohort and all of you we're recording this podcast at various locations around LA on land that is the historic gathering place for the Tongva indigenous tribe and you can visit usdac.us to learn more about honoring native land Permission to Speak is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Vision, executive produced by Katherine Burke canton and Mark Canton. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.
5: Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health.